Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right of center perspective. African American Conservatives. Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter, and please bookmark acons.substack.com. That's where you'll find our blog, our commentary, links to this podcast, all of our social media platforms, and a button where you can financially support this podcast if you so desire. Our guest today is James Rosen. He is a noted reporter, historian, and best-selling author. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Politico, the Atlantic, Harper's, National Review, and the American Bar Association Journal, among other periodicals. He is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, following two decades of acclaimed reporting at Fox News. I'm going to bring him in now and welcome him to African American Conservatives. Thank you, Marie. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me here. Then Vice President Biden gave Antonin Scalia the, post, uh, the posthumous compliment of being one of our most influential justices. How did Antonin Scalia impact the Supreme Court and the originality or textualist ju uh, judicial philosophy in your view? So this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, just came out. Um, it captures the first 50 years of Antonin Scalia's life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. So if not before then, Maria, I hope to be back with you in about two plus years to discuss volume two, which will just cover uh, the justices' years on the Supreme Court. Uh, but I was privileged to know Justice Scalia a little bit. I had lunch with him a couple times, one-on-one. -on -one. We had an unusual correspondence. That's, and sometimes amusing that that spanned over two years time. He made me eat vegetables off of his plate. When I said, Mr. <laughs> Justice, I could, he said, come on, come on, come on. So now I'm shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate into my mouth. Um, and I resolved <laughs> that one day I would write about this man. Uh, what I found is that uh, there are two existing biographies of Justice Scalia. Both of them came out while he was alive. One of them he cooperated with extensively, the other not at all. Uh, and they both came out in pretty much the same place, which is to say open in their hostility to Justice Scalia, his legacy, his jurisprudence, um, his conduct. So uh, this is the most comprehensive treatment of Scalia's life yet in print. It makes use of a vast array of uh, documentary and personal sources that were either unavailable to or overlooked by the previous biographers. Um, and I call it the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia because it is the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia. Scalia was one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years. His uh, approach to uh, the law uh, reshaped the approach of all uh, lawyers who argue before judges and justices on the Supreme Court. It shaped how judges and justices craft their opinions and their rulings, and even how lawmakers draft laws. And the core of it, as, as you suggested, Marie, was Scalia's championing of an idea known as originalism, and it has a kind of a kid brother called textualism. When Scalia first came onto the federal bench, appointed to the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit by President Reagan in 1982, and then four years later again by President Reagan to the Supreme Court, there at that time prevailed a liberal notion called the living constitution. This is the idea that the meaning of the constitution or of any statute passed since then uh, isn't fixed in time when it was enacted, but rather its meaning should expand uh, like a living, breathing organism, in order to take account of phenomena that the founders could never possibly have envisioned, such as uh, nuclear weapons or the internet. Uh, and in order to breathe this expanded meaning in, into the Constitution and, and different provisions, different uh, statutes enacted since then, liberal judges would look beyond the text of these provisions, and instead they would look to something they called legislative intent. What was said in all of those House and Senate floor debates? what was printed in those committee reports as a given measure snaked its way through the process. Judge Scalia and later Justice Scalia stood athwart all of that, Marie. His idea was that when judges are engaged in their central business, which is to interpret the meaning of the constitution or a given statute passed since then, 
They should be guided not by legislative intent, because as Scalia said, nobody voted on a floor debate. Nobody voted on a committee report. They voted on an actual measure with its actual text. And Scalia's idea was that judges and justices should be guided when interpreting the meaning of the Constitution or any statute since then by the original meaning of that text and how best to discern the original meaning by looking exactly at the text itself. This was considered radical or revolutionary when Scalia came along. But by the time he died, Marie, no less a figure than Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, an appointee of Barack Obama, had proclaimed that in effect, as a result of Scalia's championing of this idea, Scalia's revolution, these ideas of originalism and textualism, as Justice Kagan put it, quote, we are all originalists now. Well said. In your book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, you mention that uh, this book actually began when you were in high school. Can you share that story with us? So way back in the last century, when yours truly was in high school, <laughs> um, I was watching a program on PBS called The Constitution, That Delicate Balance. And it was a live studio audience in a theater in the round setting. And there was a moderator, usually the former president of CBS News, Fred Friendly, who would lead a, a congregation of um, eminent minds of the time in consideration of uh, interesting hypothetical scenarios. Uh, and so you would have, for example, Dan Rather, who was at that time the anchor and managing editor at the CBS Evening News. You would have Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court, Gerald Ford, the former president. And Scalia was frequently part of these gatherings. And immediately he struck me as fundamentally different from all the other participants uh, because he was lively and humorous, not afraid to be sarcastic. And he spoke in a way that lay audiences, non-lawyers could understand. And that's very much an aim of this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, that uh, it explains why Antonin Scalia is one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years, but does it in a way that non-lawyers can understand as well. And so one of the first things I did when I got to Washington uh, over 10 years later to serve as a young Washington correspondent, this would be 1999 uh, at the time for Fox News, was to write to Justice Scalia and seek an interview. And this commenced the two-year-long correspondence that I mentioned earlier, which is amusing in parts. Uh, and excerpts from which I hope to publish at some point in in the second volume. But we also had this pair of lunches. Like I mentioned, he, we drank wine. He made me eat off of his plate. He even drove me back to my office on both occasions. And I've been able to confirm, Marie, with uh, students who traveled with Scalia uh, to participate in debate tournaments all the way back in the 1950s, up through Supreme Court clerks in the 21st century, that being a passenger in a car driven by Antonin Scalia was as unnerving an experience for them as it proved to be for me. <laughs> That's such a great story. And by the way, I graduated high school before you did. So oh, no. I remember you know, driving my dinosaur to school. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the recurring topics in Scalia Rise to Greatness is his faith. How did Justice Scalia's faith influence him as a person and as a justice? Again, this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, it's the first admiring biography of the man. And so really it's the first to, to treat in the requisite depth and scope um, the influence of his Catholicism on his entire career. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a very important element to his story. I say that his Catholicism was the, the rocket fuel that propelled Scalia's rise to greatness, his rise to the Supreme Court. There were other important factors, not least his own genius, his extraordinary capacity for hard work, his affability, and to, we must say, and I think this book treats, again, this subject in more detail, uh, deserving detail than ever before, the contributions of Maureen Scalia, uh, the justice's wife of 55 years, uh, the mother of their nine children who raised those children, as Scalia would always say, with very little assistance uh, from him. Scalia was a product of the, uh, of the classic American immigrant experience. Um, Scalia's father, came to this country from Italy in 1920, uh, speaking not a word of English and with only $400 in his pocket and made of himself a renowned professor of Romance languages. Scalia's mother was herself the daughter of Italian immigrants and she became a school teacher and they were devout Catholics. And so from those uh, three primary influences, the influence of his mother, Catherine Pinero Scalia, who venerated form and composition in the classics as a school teacher in her own way, from the influence of his father, um, Salvatore Scalia, who wrote in his own academic uh, published works 
about the perils of the original meaning of a given sacred text uh, being distorted by a dishonest translator or interpreter. And from the influence of the Catholic Church with its foundational sacred texts and its liturgy, a young Nino Scalia emerged with a profound reverence for the original meaning of texts, the immutability, the inviolability of these sacred texts. And this was something that he carried forward with him uh, all the way into his work uh, as a judge and a justice. Now, in Scalia Rise to Greatness, you mentioned that his father was a liberal. Where then did young Nino Scalia uh, derive his conservatism? Well, I think that too, it, it too could be um, seen as a product of the immigrant experience in some ways. Um, Scalia was um, uh, open in his um, criticism of affirmative action programs, for example. And when, as a, as a law professor, uh, he, he wrote about uh, what was then the new phenomenon of affirmative action uh, quotas in admissions programs for higher education and for hiring throughout the federal government and elsewhere. Uh, and, and in writing about that, he cited his own father's immigrant experience, uh, saying that his father probably had never laid eyes on a black man when he came to this country in 1920, and that he not at all profited from the sweat of the brow of a black man. But Scalia, and so Scalia, in his hostility to uh, affirmative action, uh, he used the actual title, The Disease as Cure. To him, it was straight up reverse racism and an attempt to cure a disease by employing the very elements of the disease itself. Uh, and that was an extraordinary work, uh, 1979, The Disease as Cure by Antonin Scalia. And uh, you can read about it in Scalia Rise to Greatness. But I think in some respects, his conservatism was a... Um, was a product not only of his Catholicism, uh, but also the immigrant experience and the hardships endured by immigrants uh, without respect to race necessarily. Um, his father uh, was described as a liberal, by the way, uh, by someone who was a friend of the family and who was interviewed by the New York Daily News in June 1986, uh, and I found that clipping, when Scalia was nominated to the Supreme Court. Interesting. Now, I want to touch on something that you just said. Um, you uh, mentioned uh, his father's views on affirmative action. Why did he argue, uh, why did uh, Justice Scalia argue against it, given how he occasionally benefited from his own ethnicity? It's interesting. There was a famous exchange between Justice Scalia and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court, uh, about affirmative action. And when Scalia expressed his usual critique of it, Justice O'Connor is said to have replied, well, why Nino? I wouldn't be here if it weren't for affirmative action. Um, uh, I think that, uh, again, Scalia's story is um, quintessentially American. It is the embodiment of the American dream, which at one time uh, leaned heavily on the immigrant experience. Um, and so um, I think that uh, he came to those views about affirmative action as a result of uh, seeing his father make of himself a renowned professor of Romance languages at Brooklyn College, where he served in that capacity for 30 years with only one day of recorded absence. Scalia's idea was that um, no, he owes uh, no debt to any other racial group by virtue of the blood that flowed throughout his veins. However, he said that uh, he believed black people are his brothers, and he would want to see them receive assistance from the federal government and other entities, not on the basis of the color of their skin, but on the basis of their socioeconomic status. Uh, and so Scalia felt that, yes, preferences should be given uh, to those who are economically disadvantaged, which would ordinarily include, uh, in the time that he was writing, and even today, um, large segments of African-Americans. But uh, he did not want to see official programs or hiring or admissions programs um, cater to people solely on the basis of their race. And he's absolutely right in that. Uh, you know, I often bring up that I homeschooled my three children and my daughter is a little feisty like her mama. And, uh, you know, there was a case uh, about seven, eight, nine years ago in which uh, the firefighters in the Northeast uh, had uh, a suit because there weren't enough uh, firefighters of color who were passing the exam to be able to uh, secure higher positions. And they were
they were dumbing down the test. And my daughter was like, give me any test that you want and I will pass it. You don't need to dumb down a test for me. And I think a lot of us feel that way. You know, education was certainly my ticket out. Um, and I think that other people feel that way too. So it is really important to make that distinction. And to your point, that we need to view uh, some of these things within the lens of history, you know, I'm seeing all of these books now that are being cleansed of certain descriptors. Uh, but, you know, people lived in the time that they lived in. And so they used the language of the time that they lived in. And their worldview was framed by what they saw in the time that they lived in. And so we can't hold those things against people who lived in that time now that we know differently or that we know better. And so to your point, it's just an interesting observation. Yeah. And, you know, I think Scalia's position on this subject matter would be consonant with um, a famous poster that appeared in England in 1982, uh, I believe, uh, on behalf of the uh, Tory party, uh, which was uh, what the, the then prime minister of Great Britain, uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, belonged to. And the poster was an election poster. And it was it was disseminated widely at the time. Again, we're talking about the early 1980s. And it showed a, a picture of an Af or of a of a black person, a black man, um, and the headline said, "The liberals see a black man, the Tories see a Briton," and I think that's how Scalia would have framed it uh, with respect to African Americans and and policies here. Absolutely. Now, interestingly. Given the controversy over uh, Joe Biden's recently fulfilled promise to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court, uh, Antonin Scalia's ethnicity also played a prominent role in his appointment. Can you speak to that? So Justice Scalia was the first Italian-American to sit on the Supreme Court. Um, and he said a couple of years after that, that uh, being an ethnic is of no use whatsoever unless you happen to be a nominee for a uh, who has to go through a confirmation hearing because at his confirmation hearing in 1986, um, it was it was um, lawmaker after lawmaker, uh, either affirming that they had some distant Italian relative in their family history, or um, or otherwise uh, making reference to Scalia's ethnicity as a factor. The, the the real fact is that Scalia was supremely qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. Um, and he received at the time the highest rating from the American Bar Association in terms of his qualifications. Um, and his nomination, we must remember, was also paired with another nomination. And that was the elevation of then Associate Justice William Rehnquist to become the Chief Justice due to the uh, retirement of the Chief Justice at the time, Warren Berger. Um, as a, a, an Associate Justice on the Supreme Court for some 15 years at that point, um, Justice Rehnquist attracted a great deal of uh, criticism from the left. Um, his confirmation hearing was so nasty and bitter and partisan uh, that it, he survived with a vote of 65 to 33. That was the highest tally of uh, opposition votes ever sustained by a confirmed nominee at that point. I think today either side would be very happy to limit the opposition votes to 33. It's usually now about 52 to 48 or thereabouts. Um, but uh, it was so nasty and partisan that the, the, the Rehnquist process was dubbed the Rehnquisition. And so uh, Scalia benefited not only from his Italian-American ethnicity, but also from the fact that he was paired with, with this much more polarizing nominee at the time, the elevation of Rehnquist to become Chief Justice. Uh, the story is told for the first time in this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness. Uh, and in fact, it's the opening story in the whole book. And it comes from a familiar source, John Bolton. Yes, that John Bolton, the mustachioed former White House National Security Advisor under President Trump, the former UN ambassador in the Bush-Cheney era. Uh, in 1986, on September 17th of that year, which was Constitution Day, fittingly, uh, the U.S. Senate voted to confirm both Rehnquist and Scalia. As I mentioned, Rehnquist was confirmed 65 to 33. Scalia's vote was 98 to nothing. And it fell to uh, then 37-year-old John Bolton at the time, an assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice. And he had the mustache at that time. I've confirmed this with him. <laughs> um, it fell to John Bolton to track down the nominees and deliver to them the news of this historic vote. 
Uh, and Scalia was a social beast. Normally, the president's men would like the, the nominee who's up for that, that pivotal vote to be twiddling their thumbs with their spouse in somebody's ceremonial office somewhere uh, and ready to receive the call that's going to change their lives forever. But Scalia wasn't having any of that. He was out on the town at some black tie rubber chicken dinner on the, you know, on the Washington circuit at the Willard Hotel. So Bolton arranged for a phone line in the kitchen of the Willard Hotel to be dedicated for this purpose. And he enlisted the service of a, of a Willard Hotel employee to corral Judge Scalia at the appointed moment. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. And Scalia was brought to the kitchen of the Willard Hotel and he picks up the phone there and he hears on the other end of the line, John Bolton. The two men knew each other well. They had been scholars together at AEI when Scalia uh, was uh, subjected to a murder board session. That's a kind of a mm. mock confirmation hearing where they pepper you with nasty questions, which Scalia aced. Um, uh, John Bolton had been present for that. So he gets, now they're both on the phone together. And again, this is told for the first time in this book. Bolton says, Nino, congratulations. You've just been confirmed by the U.S. Senate by a vote of 98 to nothing. Isn't it fantastic? And Bolton's caught up in the reverie for a moment when he realizes the other end of the line has gone silent. And Scalia finally says, who were the two senators who didn't vote? And Bolton says, oh, it was, it was Barry Goldwater and Jake Garn. But isn't it fantastic, Nino? Congratulations. And again, the line falls silent. And Bolton's not hearing anything. And finally, Scalia says, with a hint of rebuke in his voice, do you mean to tell me we couldn't get Goldwater and Garn? <laughs> Which, by all rights, he was correct, should have been two easy votes to corral. And uh, as Bolton told me the story, he said that he was starting to grow irritated at this point, uh, because after the stresses of the Requisition, 98 to nothing for Scalia was looking pretty good. And he says, well, we, you know, uh, Barry Goldwater, we couldn't find. My research showed, Marie, that in fact, Goldwater, as the delate was voted into the evening that day, went home sick. And he mm -hmm. says, he continues to Scalia, Jake Garn is in the hospital donating his kidney to his daughter. Nino, concentrate. You've just been confirmed 98 to nothing. And there's a pause on the other end of the line. And finally, Scalia says, you're right. That's great. You're right. Thank you. Uh, but would you know that uh, in 20 years at later, uh, when he was on the Supreme Court for 19 years at that point, you can find online on the C-SPAN video archive, a video of Justice Scalia welcoming school students into the Supreme Court and talking with them where he mentions the fact that he was confirmed 98 to nothing and then says, so let's make it 100. <laughs> what a great story. Now, another great story in Scalia, Rise to Greatness, is your uh, depiction of the Mozart-Celliere relationship uh, between Justice Scalia and Robert Bork, who was once seen as the pinnacle of conservative jurisprudence. How did Antonin Scalia overtaking Bork's uh, professional success uh, affect their relationship, especially after Bork's disastrous confirmation hearing. Yes, so the next uh, nominee to the Supreme Court after the Rehnquist-Scalia confirmations was uh, the following year in 1987 when President Reagan nominated uh, Judge Robert Bork uh, to, to the Supreme Court. And as we all know, uh, that was probably, uh, at least until the Clarence Thomas hearing, the most bitter and partisan in American history. Uh, and it, it ended with the rejection of, uh, of Judge Bork. Ultimately, that seat was filled by Anthony Kennedy. Uh, throughout the 70s, um, Bork and Scalia were great friends. Their families were friends. Their kids hung out. Uh, and, and Eugene Scalia, prominent attorney in his own right, the eldest son of Justice Scalia, former Trump cabinet official, told me in interviews for this book, that there was once an occasion in the um, in the 70s or early 80s when the Scalias had a party at their house, uh, at, to which the Borks were in attendance. And after everyone left and the and the home was quiet, uh, Scalia turned on his son and pointed at him and said, "Now that's why you study hard and you work hard in school so that you can grow up and have friends like Bob Bork." And at various points in their careers, Bork gave Scalia a, a kind of a, a helping hand. Uh, that included the one time that Scalia ever appeared before the Supreme Court as an advocate in 1976, when Bork and Scalia both worked at the Department of Justice. It was thanks to Bork that Scalia was permitted to argue a case before the Supreme Court. This is 10 years before he became a justice. Um, unfortunately, there came the point where the two of them, Bork and Scalia, were seated together 
in a real murderer's row of judicial legal talent uh, on the DC circuit, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. It's one rung below the Supreme Court, and it's often described as the second most powerful court in America. The murderer's row of judges who sat on that court at that time included Robert Bork, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, Kenneth Starr, Lawrence Silberman. Uh, and when they were seated together on that court, the Court of Appeals, or the D.C. Circuit, uh, Judge Bork came out with an opinion on an important First Amendment case in which he wrote that uh, due to the modern demands of libel law, uh, judges should uh, see some need for evolution in how they interpret the First Amendment. Even, Bork said, if that admitted some element of judicial subjectivity into the whole process. Now, to Scalia, this was outright heresy. This sounded to Scalia's ears like Judge Bork uh, uh, issuing a call to arms for the very kind of imperial judiciary that Bork and Scalia had spent the last 15 years denouncing. And so Scalia wrote a very sharply worded um, concurrence in that case, uh, again, this is when Bork and Scalia served on the Court of Appeals, the federal appellate bench, that took direct aim at Bork's opinion. And it really kind of um, introduced uh, real friction into their relationship to the point where, as late as 1989, and that's two years after politics and fate had settled with cruel finality, this friendly rivalry between them as to which of them would get to the Supreme Court or which of them would get there first, as late as 1989, Bork, in a, in a book he published, took aim at that Scalia concurrence without naming Scalia, but it was clear because he referenced which case it was in. And, and Bork wrote that anyone who would espouse those views had no business being a judge, let alone even a law professor. Uh, what's interesting too is that as those cracks formed in the Scalia-Bork relationship, that was just around the time when uh, Scalia started uh, his, his famous friendship, which would last until the end of their days with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Interesting. Um, your view of Joe Biden, based on how you characterize his exchanges with Scalia during the confirmation, is probably not very different from ours. What did Scalia think of him? Well, Scalia never commented directly on Joe Biden per se, but this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, is the first to really look back uh, at length with a, with a critical eye on the role that um, then-Senator Joe Biden played in the Scalia confirmation process. Uh, and the truth is, he did not distinguish himself. Uh, there were occasions in his extended rounds of questioning of uh, Judge Scalia uh, during his confirmation hearing before the Senate in uh, August 1986, where Senator Biden had to uh, withdraw his questions and apologize. There's clear occasions where he was wasting the time of the entire proceeding, raising an issue with Scalia that none of the other Democrats uh, saw fit to raise and which everyone present knew would not factor in anyone's vote. Uh, there's even a point at which um, Senator Biden says to the nominee, Judge Scalia, forget the Constitution, let's talk politics, which of course is counsel that, that no uh, right-thinking or sensible nominee for any position up for Senate confirmation would ever follow. Uh, it even, there was one point where uh, Senator Biden at the time commented publicly to the effect that he didn't see that Antonin Scalia would be much more conservative than Warren Berger had been. And that was precisely the opposite of what every uh, expert and, and law professor who was quoted publicly on the matter had said in the press for the past 90 days. It's difficult to imagine the ranking Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee having so little grasp on, on the different jurisprudential philosophies of Warren Berger and Antonin Scalia at that time. Uh, so this book uh, recounts in detail um, how Senator Biden behaved in that process. He ultimately did vote for Antonin Scalia, uh, but again, the president, the, the man who is now our president, did not distinguish himself in that episode way back in 1986. Mm. What attracted uh Justice Scalia to an academic career, and what do you think it must have been like to have Antonin Scalia as your law professor? So Scalia was always uh, interested in teaching, uh, even before he took his first job out of Harvard Law School, which was uh, the Jones Day Law Firm based in Cleveland, uh, where he practiced law for the first six years of his professional career. He always made it clear to the partners there that at some point 
he would probably uh, want to seek a teaching position. His first teaching position was at the University of Virginia Law School in Charlottesville from around 1967 to 1971, a time of extraordinary upheaval on college campuses in general. Uh, and Charlottesville was certainly not immune to any of that. Scalia saw some, some extraordinary protest scenes go down on that campus. Um, the previous biographers who were hostile to Scalia really treated his academic career uh, quite cursorily. I went back and found uh, several students of his um, from the, that period of the late 60s and early 70s. And then again, when he was a, a law professor at the University of Chicago Law School in the late 1970s, early 80s. And he always received excellent ratings from his students. But these students told me in our interviews, uh, this was the best teacher I ever had. This was the most challenging teacher I ever had. Scalia was an avid actor in high school theater, and he brought that sense of drama and theatricality to his performances for his students. Um, students in the first class he ever taught at UVA Law School, which was contracts, recall him running back and forth from one side of the stage to the other to act out the parts of two parties who were in a contract dispute. Um, one student uh, remind, uh, remembered for me uh, what Scalia told the class the morning after the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, um, when it was very difficult for them to concentrate given the national outpouring of grief and trauma and shock in response to that event. But Scalia told them to concentrate hard because he was still going to make them take the test that he had scheduled for that day, and he did. Wow. Uh, one of the most interesting things uh, to your readers uh, in anticipating the sequel to Scalia Rise to Greatness is the relationship between Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas, two men who are dramatically different in their personalities and personal histories, but uh, share a similar philosophy. Can you give us a preview of that relationship? Absolutely. So I'm pleased to be able to tell you that I interviewed Justice Thomas for this project, spent about two hours with him one-on-one -on -one in chambers. Um, and of course, he and Scalia had a great friendship, um, probably the closest of the friendships that Scalia had amongst uh, the so-called conservatives on the court. They really revered each other. And both men uh, were deeply offended by uh, caricatures of, of Justice Thomas, often uh, racially tinged that depicted him as somehow a clone uh, or a lackey of, of Justice Scalia, when in fact the evidence shows um, that um, on many occasions, or, or more than one, uh, Justice Thomas was able to persuade Justice Scalia to come around to Justice Thomas's views on given cases. Um, but they had a great friendship. Um, I can tell you, for example, one story that Justice Thomas told me was that uh, Scalia, having grown up in Queens, was an avid hunter in part because his grandfather taught him how to hunt, and also because Scalia uh, attended and graduated as valedictorian from a high school. It was very unusual, then or now. This was the mid-1950s. It was called Xavier High School. It's still there, it's still there in Manhattan. Uh, it was and remains a, um, a hybrid of a Jesuit private school and a military academy. Justice Scalia used to delight in telling audiences about how he'd commuted back and forth on the subway from Queens to Manhattan, with his 22 rifle casually slung over his shoulder and no one batting an eye at it. Uh, and that's because he was part of the regiment there at Xavier. He was very disappointed when regimental duty was later made um, uh, elective and not a requirement for graduation from Xavier. But once when they were both on the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia said to Justice Thomas, Clarence, I, I want to take you hunting. Why, why won't you go hunting with me? You know, I'm from Queens and I go hunting and you're from rural Georgia and you won't go hunting? And Justice Thomas's reply was, Nino, where I come from, nothing good happens in the woods. <laughs> you were seen in the viral video of Cameroonian reporter Simon Antiba's uh, accusation of discrimination by the press secretary at a White House press conference during which he specifically noted how uh, he and others were not uh, called on to ask questions uh, for months while others were called on daily. Is there any truth to his accusations? I can't speak for the motivations of Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary. Um, and when Simon, whom I like, um, uses the word discrimination, 
Um, normally that carries uh, a racial tinge or an ethnic tinge to it, or even a gender tinge. Um, in its most neutral form, I suppose we could certainly say that, um, uh, that Karine Jean-Pierre discriminates in terms of who she calls on because uh, most days, four-fifths of that room do not get called on. And I think that's a, a large factor in why we have seen the press briefing room uh, in her tenure devolve from time to time into outright distemper. If you're stiffing four-fifths of the room, it's not going to be a happy room. Um, that said, uh, a lot of uh, criticism came to Mr. Atiba for the way he pursued this, um, this complaint, which in effect was to disrupt the briefing for several minutes before it could even begin on the occasion when the White House uh, communications team had welcomed to the briefing room um, the cast of Ted Lasso. Um, and I even came in for grief on Twitter uh, and wherever there are professional givers of grief uh, for about 72 hours because I, quote unquote, did not um, rush to defend Simon Atiba. And I have to say, uh, I know his frustration because I went eight months before Karine Jean-Pierre called on me for a question. We were finally able to have an an off-camera meeting and to discuss why that might be and to make some limited progress on the matter. Uh, and that's the, the course I think most of Simon's colleagues would recommend uh, for him. Uh, but I had to explain to the professional givers of grief online that uh, every reporter in that room has their own editors, their own assigned stories, their own deadlines, um, and, and their own audiences. And as a consequence of all that, and quite sensibly, their own agendas in that room. Um, and so, um, you know, for Simon, who's a, a, a grown-up adult, to uh, make the choice to uh, pursue his grievance in that way means that Simon would have to face whatever comes of that in his own way. The very first thing that came to him as a result of that was to be booked on Tucker Carlson's show. So I don't know that he was entirely dissatisfied with the outcome. Uh, but I didn't see it as my role as a reporter uh, to do anything to intervene in that confrontation. Uh, my, as I explained online, uh, and you can read all of this on my Twitter feed, at James Rosen TV, I have one job and one job only in that briefing room. That is to elicit information and to report it to the viewers of Newsmax. Oh, how I wish that your colleagues would embrace that. I mean, I mentioned I'm a little older than you are. Uh, Walter Cronkite, you know, and all of that, that era of journalism where you actually reported on facts and let people make their own interpretations. Wow, what a novel concept. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, so how do you compare the Trump press room and uh, that with that of President Biden's in terms of the relationship between the press secretary and the reporters? Well, I'm afraid, Marie, that I didn't cover the Trump White House day to day. I was not a White House correspondent at that time. Um, I covered the White House when I was with Fox News from uh, 2000, the last year of Bill Clinton, to the beginning of 2005. So I did the first four years of Bush Cheney. Then I moved over to the State Department and covered several secretaries of state. Had the privilege of traveling with all of these people. I've been to 53 foreign countries uh, on five continents, including Africa. Uh, we're just coming up soon on the 20th anniversary of George W. Bush's first trip to Africa, which I was privileged to cover. Uh, five countries in five days, Senegal, South Africa, Botswana, Uganda, Nigeria, and then back to Maryland. Um, uh, so I can't say that I was uh, a participant in the, in, in the action in that room um, during the Trump White House, of course, we know that uh, for quite a long spell of time, there were no White House press briefings held in the Trump administration. I would say generally, though, as, as someone who has been in Washington the entire time and been a practicing reporter, uh, that um, uh, in general, we're seeing fewer and fewer presidential full-scale news conferences. And this has been a trend for a long time. Uh, at least President Trump uh, frequently took reporters' questions out on the lawn, where he would sort of prowl like a kind of a, a hungry shark pointing at people behind the velvet rope there as he, as he took questions uh, en route or en route to or from the, the, the Marine One, the presidential helicopter. Um, President Biden takes very few questions. He's only held, I think, two full-scale news conferences in two years. Um, I made news at the first of those back in January 2022 by asking about the polling data surrounding his uh, concerns about his mental 
uh, cognitive fitness. Um, he does not do very many sit-down interviews, even with those uh, interviewers or, or outlets that might be presumed to be sympathetic to him. Um, increasingly, he is not even allowing visiting heads of state, uh, and today is a good example of it, to hold news conferences side by side with the president where uh, insiders call them two plus twos. That's because the, the press corps for the visiting dignitary and the White House press corps would each get two questions, typically. So today we have the leader from Argentina here at the White House, and there is no news conference. This was recently true with the leaders of Brazil uh, and Germany. There's a, there's a fourth that, uh, that's escaping me at the moment. And this is a real break with tradition. Um, and I know, for example, the Brazilian delegation was not pleased at this and was, was, was further displeased that President Lula was dispatched in order to be able to address his own press corps in the, in the prime real estate of the White House to the stakeout microphone outside the West Wing in the driveway of the White House. And that's where he took questions from his own uh, press delegation. So um, I would say that in general, we're seeing a, a bad trend amongst American presidents of access to the press um, and particularly grievous under, under this president. Wow. If you're just joining us, our guest for this segment is noted journalist and author James Rosen. His book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, is out now. When might we expect the follow-up? And how can our readers follow your work online? Well, so thank you again, Marie. Uh, you can watch me cover the White House every day on Newsmax, where I'm the chief White House correspondent. You can check me out on Twitter at James Rosen TV. Uh, the book is called Scalia Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Uh, you can order it on Amazon or Books a Million or Barnes and Noble or uh, through the publisher, regnery.com to get discounts. And it's sold in brick and mortar stores everywhere fine books are sold. Excellent. We look forward to you coming back. Thanks so much for being our guest today. Marie, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So this is the part of the show where we bring in DK. So DK, I'm going to bring you in right now. Hey there. Hey, how's it going? It's going. Oh, what do you have for us? It wasn't that awesome. That, that is great those anecdotes. Deal. I love those. Yeah. It's funny. I was just a little bit distracted by all the superhero stuff he had behind him. Did you notice all that? No, I'm going to have to look. I, I, that's pretty cool. We yeah, like uh, superheroes. Yeah, Neil, <laughs> yeah, Neil Adams was like a great artist. The art of Neil Adams. He had yeah, a, a that's pretty Bat, cool. Batman thing. He had a couple of... Decent, oh, look at that. We're seeing... Things. <laughs> yes. All right, I'm back. You're back. Oh, there he yes. is. Yeah, I like... was admiring your collection behind you. So I'm so tickled that uh, you know who Neil Adams is. <laughs> oh, yeah. He is the uh, the artist who drew that image of Superman that you can see over my shoulder. And, I, you know, uh, so I, among the books I want to get off my chest at some point is a biography of Neil Adams because I interviewed him for over 20 hours. Wow. So cool. And this is yep. somebody that I idolized, you know, my whole life. And I was devastated when he passed away uh, yeah. last year at the age of 80. Yeah. But I want to show you just because DK mentioned it and he knew who Neil Adams was. Check this out. So this is the cover of uh, Action Comics number 419. So okay? cool. Which was innovative 1972. And it was innovative because it used a, um, a drawing by Neil, although this is actually a collaboration with another artist. Um, but it, it has Neil's hallmark of sort of leaping out at you and hyper-realism and so on. And it was influential at the time because, as you can see, it grafted the image of Superman onto a photograph of Manhattan or Metropolis, right? But that's not all that there is to see here, DK. You ready for this? This is actually like oh. a little hiding space. <laughs> that's yes. awesome. Now, it's so not airtight. Cool. I have in the past used it for that purpose. As you can tell, I am not now, so there's no one, no reason for anyone to try and break into this office and, and <laughs> see what's in here. There's nothing in here, but I thought you'd appreciate that. That'd be a great cigar that box. That is so cool. <laughs> that is so cool. Thank you for sharing yeah, yeah. that with us. All right. We tend to you... geek out about stuff like that. We're pretty big comic <laughs> nerds here. Oh, man. So. <laughs> when, when you do your book on Neil Adams, you have to come back. That's absolutely right. And before I go, I want to show you this. So this just came out. If you go to Tomorrow's Publishing, that's T-W-O, Morrow's, M-O-R-R-O-W-S, 
you can buy this, which this is oh, brand new. Wow. Brand new. It's uh, it's the famous fanzine called Alter Ego, okay, which is now a pro zine. It's edited by Roy Thomas, who's you know was the first editor of Marvel Comics who wasn't named Stan Lee, wow. and who's a living legend himself. Roy Thomas was a collaborator with Neil Adams, and this whole issue is devoted exclusively to Neil Adams, and it's got uh, articles and interviews with him. And I'm pleased to say that I made it in here, uh, and I have uh, an article in here. <laughs> That's um, cool. I'll show you briefly. Which, which draws on the 20 hours of interviews, okay? And um, I contributed two pieces, of which this is one, of Neil's artworks that have never been published anywhere else. These come from the James Rosen collection. So, and this focuses on his childhood. Uh, I, I know we're far afield, but if you go to tomorrows.com and you, you can order this, you can read uh, about Neil's childhood as he told it to me himself. Very awesome. cool. Okay, you get to be our favorite guest for all right. So that's cool. <laughs> so we can have Thank a Neil Adams so show. So I can't wait for, for that. With us. Thank you guys. Yeah, a whole show cool. dedicated to Neil Adams. I can't wait for that. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. That's <laughs> pretty awesome. All right, I'll. See. So now, uh, what do you think? We've got more to talk about because like you know you and I now. are big comic aficionados. I like, I like them even more now. I know, right? New Adams, a uh, new <laughs> Adams. Right. Uh, yeah, I should I should have pulled out Sebastian's uh, collection where he got uh, Stan Lee's autograph. They're standing in the thing. Stan Lee, you know, came to our local comic book shop, and you know, all these people are like, "Oh, it's Stan Lee! It's Stan Lee!" Going absolutely nuts, right? He's not really talking to anybody. He's just kind of signing this because the line is out the door and around the block, right? My husband brings this uh, book because he loves all the covers and all the artwork, um, and he does a lot of repro stuff. And so he brings this really old picture and Stanley is like, whoa, that's pretty cool. And so they start talking. <laughs> he signs it. So that, that's my, you know, brush with greatness. So comic greatness, at least. So I've only had one brush with comic greatness. And that was oh, yeah. uh, Kevin Conway. Who oh, yeah. Did, uh, the voice that was my maiden name. Yeah. So. He did the voice of, for the, for the few people who don't know by now, I think 90% of us know, but he did the voice of Batman on so many animated shows. And remember, I went, went to a Warner Brothers signing to get his autograph. And of course, Warner Brothers required you to um, buy something from Warner Brothers. For, you can't you couldn't just walk in and have them sign stuff. You had to buy something to get in the line for an autograph. And, and and I did, because, you know, back then, I was buying everything Batman related at Warner Brothers anyway. So what's another? Well, and the animated <laughs> series was just oh, amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's it was amazing. just an amazing show. Amazing. And they had so many great things in that animated yeah. series. They had a whole floor dedicated to Batman. And you can buy real cells from the show, you know, yeah. the artwork. They cost the fortune. They're way out of yeah. my league. But I would love to have a, a house full of stuff like that. You never see them... Um, off being offered anyway, anywhere. So anyway, um, I got my little thing, and I also bought an action figure. I snuck in the action figure from the the animated you rebel. show. You not following the rules? <laughs> I'm shocked. I tell you, shocked. And a Warner Brothers employee came up to me and said, "Oh, Mr. Conway can't autograph that. You didn't buy that here." And he goes, "And then in his Batman, in voice. the iconic Batman <laughs> voice, I know I'm Batman." <laughs> He says, why can't I sign that? And they're like, oh, okay, Batman wants to sign it. That's <laughs> cool. It. That's cool. And I had that hanging in my room for for over a decade. I was, it meant so much to me that he signed it in rebellion to uh, the Warner Brother rules. So that was my brush with greatness. It's, it was wow. amazing. I miss him. I, there's just, I mean, he is Batman to me. You know, with apologies yeah. to all the others, but very, I, very, I just I thought he was a very nice man, a great talent. I was sorry to see him go. That would yeah. And Stanley is gone also, and yes. so, so many great ones have gone. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about this week and uh, this whole month, this women's uh history month. Which has been yeah, it hasn't been over. very focused on women, has it? No, not at all. We've been focusing a lot on the trans movement lately, and a lot of things we are learning about the trans movement has not been pleasant. 
um, we know, for example, we know more clearly uh, now that people who become trans are, are affected with these different uh, disorders, mental disorders that make them think that they're born in the wrong body, born in the wrong sex. You know, they have ADD, they're autistic, they suffer from depression, borderline personal, personality disorder. It's a whole list of mental disorders that uh, affect them very strongly. None of these are uncommon. A lot of us have ADD or autistic or and so forth, but suffer from depression. But the people who are more prone to, I guess, genetic dysphoria tend to have one of these other uh, comorbidities, they call it, you know. Mm -hmm. And we're also learning that the trans movie, there's a huge percentage of the trans movie that are trans activists. And they seem to wield a great amount of power over the Democrat Party, um, corporations like you saw with Hershey's, and especially Disney, uh, public education, and, and so forth. And we're also learning that they are very closely aligned with the Mar Marxist um, domestic terrorist group Antifa, which is which is very alarming. So, as we record this, a few days ago, uh, there was a, a transgender. Uh, um, it was a biological uh, woman, in this case, who went to a, a Christian school and shot. Uh, I think it was uh, six people. Six people. Three children, three Murdered adults. six yeah. people. And it was a very horrific event. I mean, it was, it was just shocking that anybody would want to kill uh, children. And no, and three adults, but he specifically killed three nine-year-olds, which was mm -hmm. amazing. And to see this person get defended by the trans press, despite of the horrific thing that happened, was was definitely alarming. Um, it was very disturbing. So, and no concern about the you know Christian faith because no. this happened at a faith based that's, school. That's the yeah. point I should, we should yeah. mention because this was very clearly, even though the so called manifesto or whatever notes that this person left behind, we weren't allowed to uh, read. But you have to think that it was a, a hate crime, you know. It, these things don't happen by uh, coincidence. Like when that guy, I've got his name, Dylan, I think, Dylan Thomas, shot up yeah. a black church. It was not taken as a coincidence that the church was black. You know, he obviously was targeting black people. And, and when you shoot up a Christian school, you know, unless that's the only school in Tennessee open at the time, it was definitely a threat against people who opposed the trans agenda, by which I mean, uh, the things they do that target children, all ages drag shows, the the drag queen story hours, the people they want to target people who oppose these horrific surgeries and pharmaceuticals that they give children now, and even people who um, oppose having biological men compete against women in, in sports, and um, even to a degree of targeting heterosexual men who refuse to date mm -hmm. women, which which is incredible. That's not something you, sh you should be required to do, you know, <laughs> to, be, to be considered a good person. So we've seen all this, and we've seen how Christians specifically, but people who oppose certain aspects of the transit in agenda in general are being targeted by these Antifa-type uh, trans activists who are, who are making no secret of how dangerous they are. Um, Tucker did this whole segment on um, an NPR show where he he showed people are uh, encouraging trans people to buy guns, you know, which is quite people a People who are mentally ill, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. which is quite a weird thing for NPR. Yeah, you, you think about all the red flag laws, right? Where if somebody has a mental illness or, or if you yourself, I mean, you have to, there's a form that you have to fill out and it has, you know, do you have a mental health diagnosis? But, you know, I digress. No, no I think that's a perfect yeah. point. I, mean, I, I think that's a good point. It's my, but, in know. my view, I don't know how this could be wrong that if you're yeah. a transgender, you're, you're, 
ipso facto have it's a, in the dsm-5 we've talked yeah, about that you, you yeah. have a mental problem but and then when you learn more about the uh, correl correlation between transgenderism and all these other problems that i listed you know borderline personality disorder suicidal tendencies uh and, and so forth you, you can make a legitimate case, I think, that anybody who is a trans should not be allowed to own a gun. Um, even though, like I, I should always mention that 90% of people who are trans just want to be left alone, live their lives, go to work, come home, have a loved one, watch TV, pay their taxes, and so forth. But still, it's, it's a large percentage of trans people who are problematic and could be dangerous and, and speaking of danger there's a an event happening on april 1st called the trans uh trans day of vengeance and who are they who are they seeking vengeance against it's people and like how? us in what way how does and the what, vengeance what, manifest itself right exactly so you have all these antifa type uh trans terrorists who are seeking vengeance against people who are opposing the things I've mentioned already, like these pharmaceuticals and the surgery geared at children. And you wonder how, how bad this is going to eventually get. Well, I have some feelings about that. As you can mm -hmm. see, I kind of teared up while you were talking a little bit because, you know, um, you always do that while I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> I I um, have been very open about the fact that I have struggled with mental health issues almost all my life, depression, anxiety. And just last night I read, uh, I finished this a most amazing book. It's a kid's book. It's called OCD, OC Daniel, OCD Daniel. Um, and it's about a boy who has OCD. And if you read this book, and I highly recommend that you do. But if you read this book, it talks about the torturous mental process that this kid goes through every single day just to survive. The strength of character that someone like that has, I can relate to because I understand your brain kind of always on this loop telling you stuff that isn't really accurate. Um, and you kind of have to fight to suppress that every day while you're working, while you're momming, while you're doing whatever it is that you're doing every single day and not going to shoot up people, not doing all of these things that these other, you cannot hide behind the mantle of mental illness. Now, do I think that mental illness in this country is handled correctly? No, I don't. I think our mental health system um, is woefully inaccurate, inadequate to meet the need. That's under Republican administrations. That's under Democrat uh, administrations. That's under everybody. I have suffered with this condition for uh, a number of decades, and I've seen administrations come and go, and I've never really seen um, what I would consider uh, adequate mental health care in this country. Uh, in terms of getting appointments when you need them, in terms of getting uh, grandfathered in as if your insurance changes, in terms of getting your refills in, in medications that you might need to have. Uh, and so I think it's it's woefully inaccurate, uh, inadequate. However, um, you know, I, I understand that, you know, people are mentally ill uh, and that is why they are not allowed to have weapons. Um, but what I see now that's going to happen is, you know, oh, well, you know, this person was mentally ill. So, and they were tired of, you know, you cisgender people uh, piling on to them. And as I said, in this book, the stuff that this kid goes through every day, just a function, that's a lot of us. And we don't do these things. We don't. Um, and so it really bothered me to see that a pass is being given to this person who suffers from a number of comorbidities, as you mentioned. Um, and, you know, uh, 
the mental health stuff absolutely was a motivator, but it seems like a pass is being given. And what about those people who've committed these other atrocities? Um, you know, it's always about the gun lobby and the NRA and you gun people and all you right wingers. Um, is mental health not an issue there also? So maybe the issue is we actually finally fix uh, access to mental health care services in this country and rant. Well said. You know, just, just to clarify, um, or just to underscore something I said earlier, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that trans people are necessarily bad. I think 90 no. or 95% of people who are trans are, are good people who just have a mental problem and and they should be treated with the same respect you would you would treat a non-trans person. It's just that with the or correlation, people with mental illness in general. Yeah, yeah it's just that um, with the problems that they are suffering from, we should not encourage these problems. We should not uh, try to normalize these problems. You know, forcing ourselves to use the appropriate uh, pronouns and so forth, and um, and when, when it comes to their constitutional right to own a gun, you know, I don't want to say that they shouldn't be allowed to uh, own a gun, but the fact that they're trans and have mental, have a mental disorder, it should be taken, it should be factored in when these gun licenses are issued. So I'll leave it at that. Well, and I'll say this too. I mean, again, I'm just coming off of the, high, if you will, of reading this book. You know, they talk about when you read a book, you kind of have to leave that world. And I'm still in that world a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't require, because I have OCD, that there's a cleaning service that comes to my house that the taxpayers pay for. I don't require um, a lot of things that, you know, again, if you read this book that this kid has to endure to just function at a basic level. Um, and so, you know, I don't require those things. I don't make you uh, feed into my uh, compulsions. And that's what obsessive compulsive disorder is. It's you have these thoughts and these thoughts make you do things because if you don't, you know, avoid the cracks, then, you know, this, you'll die. Or if you don't touch a doorknob so many times, then this, I mean, it's just really, you know, not rational stuff that happens. You know, I could make you say things or do things that fed into my compulsions, um, but that would be wrong. I understand that I have a condition that is, you know, uh, strenuous, on me as a person to kind of mask while I'm dealing with stuff, but I don't force you into my irrationality because I understand that it's irrational. And that is the, the problem that I have, whether it's transgenderism, whatever it might be. The problem is it is your mental health and I can certainly be compassionate because I have been an advocate of transparency, of ending the stigma being, um, you know, understanding that people take medications for mental health because there's a stigma around that versus, you know, medicines for diabetes or cancer or whatever it might be, you know, that's okay to take. But if you have to take a mental health medication, then, you know, you have to do it on the down low because, you know, there's a stigma around it. So I've been an advocate for that. But at the same time, I feel like, um, you know, we need to be compassionate and understanding. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like, uh, my condition, I, I can't force anybody to feed into these compulsions and, and, and this way of thinking just because my thinking is dysregulated. I can't draw you into that and expect you to live into my world. I expect you to understand it. If you're someone that's close to me, you know, my family gets it. Um, you know, you get it. Uh, but there are a lot of people that may not, and they're not in my sphere. So I, I get that. But um, I, I can't make you uh, follow into my compulsions and touch doorknobs or do whatever it is that I do. 
uh, with a person with as a person with OCD or come clean my kitchen or whatever it might be. Yeah, well, that's that's perfectly said again. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And on that note, we wrap up another episode of African American Conservatives. I'm Marie. I'm DK. And please bookmark acons.substack.com. That's where you'll find all of our commentary. You'll find links to this podcast and our social media platforms. And until next time, this is African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Thank you for listening to this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us online at acons.substack.com anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. And also you can support our work at anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S forward slash support.